Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Once I saw it, I knew this, this has to be blood, but I kept trying to reason with my mind as to, like, surely this is, this is not what I'm thinking. In our research, we occasionally come across a case that is so out there. Not only is the crime itself unbelievable, we almost can't believe that every podcast under the sun hasn't covered it already. In this particular scenario, however, not many people have. It doesn't happen all the time, but every so often we dig up an affidavit or case file that reads like an actual horror movie script. For now, let's leave it at that. I'm not going to waste much time in the intro because, quite frankly, the details of this horrifying case speak for themselves. I just want to quickly provide our listeners with a warning. This one is disturbing. And if you're triggered at all by depictions of torture, dismemberment, sexual assault, or extreme acts of violence toward women specifically, please be advised. That being said, it's a fascinating case that only gets more bizarre the deeper we dive. Allow us to take you back for a moment, all the way back 30 years ago, the period from which the term millennial was born, the beloved 1990s. For a lot of us, these were arguably the best years of our lives, and we didn't even know it yet. Back when the Smashing Pumpkins released Siamese Dream on compact disc, a time when you actually had to walk into your local Sam Goody or other store to purchase your favorite music for that Sony Walkman of yours. Long before the convenience of the internet put music at our fingertips. What an inconvenient yet delightful world. But I digress, because for the people of Phoenix, Arizona, the nostalgia of this period was not nearly as sweet. In fact, the 1990s would wind up becoming the least joyous and possibly most terrifying decade this city has ever seen. On the morning of Monday, November 9th, 1992, a woman named Marie Bergman was leaving her home at the Woodstone Apartments for her shift at the local hospital. On her way to the carport where her vehicle was parked, she felt the presence of someone following closely behind her. Marie quickly turned around to see a tall man with long brown hair standing there, expressionless, almost staring through her, but continuing to advance directly toward her. Marie's instincts told her to immediately run from the man dressed all in black. Thankfully, she listened to that intuition. She began sprinting back to her apartment, and once she got there, she frantically rattled her key into the lock before making it inside and slamming the door behind her. After a few well-warranted deep breaths, Marie began to process what had just happened. She looked out the window, but the man was gone. After several minutes had passed and still no sign of whoever this person was, Marie eventually felt confident that the coast was clear. With more caution this time, she left the apartment once again and proceeded to her vehicle, where she hopped in and drove away. There's no question Marie had just escaped a potentially frightening situation. 
but it wouldn't be until hours later when she would realize just how fortunate she truly was. Once she returned home from work later that afternoon, Marie learned that a body had been found behind her building that same morning. Residents of the Woodstone Apartments couldn't be sure, but there were rumblings that a victim was one of their neighbors, a young woman who lived in that very complex, and that body was missing its head. The day before, Marie Bergman was followed by that mysterious figure in dark clothing. Her neighbor, Angela Brasso, was celebrating her 22nd birthday with her boyfriend. Angela and her boyfriend, Joe, spent that entire Sunday evening together on November 8th, 1992. They'd just picked up their mountain bikes from a local repair shop before heading to their home at the Woodstone Apartments in Phoenix. It was going to be a relatively low-key evening. The couple was planning to hang out and watch Star Trek at 7 p.m., a Sunday night tradition of theirs. But midway through the show, Angela found herself bored. So she'd decided to go get some fresh air and told Joe that she was going out for a quick bike ride. The bike path that ran above the Arizona Canal was just behind their apartment. Riding together was one of their favorite things to do. But this particular night was different. It was Angela's birthday, so being the good guy that Joe was... He'd made a birthday cake for her. It was in the oven at the time, so he decided to stay behind and keep an eye on it. I was baking her a cake that night. That was the reason I didn't go on the bike ride. It was getting dark just before Angela left, but Joe wasn't concerned. Besides, she'd just gotten her bike back from the shop and she was probably eager to try it out. So she made her way out the front door wearing a purple shirt, purple umbro soccer shorts, a gray sweatshirt, and white tennis shoes an image that Joe was unaware would soon be seared into his mind, forever. Angela was only supposed to be gone for about 15 minutes, as the route she and her boyfriend normally took was pretty short. So when 8.30 came around, Joe began to worry. Not long after, he hopped on his freshly tuned diamondback bike himself and went to the canal to look for her. Joe rode their usual loop but saw no sign of his girlfriend Angela anywhere. After returning home, he decided to wait until about 9.30, at which point he went looking for her again. But still, nothing. He came home and would ride to that canal for a third time later on that evening at about 11 p.m. But just like the two times before, Angela was nowhere to be found. And after calling her mother and another friend... Angela's boyfriend would dial 911 around midnight. However, the police wouldn't begin searching for her until early that next day. The morning of Monday, November 9, 1992, officers began canvassing the bike path where Angela Brasso was last known to be riding. On a motorcycle, police patrolled the path adjacent to the Arizona Canal, which was located below the interstate. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be long before something stopped law enforcement dead in their tracks. When we were driving south, riding south, uh, we noticed a large line of blood uh, across uh, our path or in our way. In addition to the obvious reddish-brown colored stains on the ground, there were shreds of purple fabric that appeared to be some type of ripped-up clothing found alongside the trail running in the same direction. We stopped our bikes and we looked to the right and or to the west where we saw a body. Ma'am, I thought it was a mannequin. I was inching my way up to see the head, to see her eyes, to see if, because uh, you know, then I could just determine. 
sadly, this was no mannequin. And as sick as it was, this was certainly no joke. The sequence of blood that ran off the bike path eventually led officers to a patch of grass where they'd find the remains of a young woman who had not only been brutalized, but also decapitated. Uh, There were some uh, signs of incisions around the stump of her neck. Uh, She had an incision that went from roughly the top portion of her chest down to above her pubic bone area. Uh, There was another incision that went circumferentially around from the front to the sides to the back all the way around her body. Um, There were stab wounds uh, in parts of her chest where the skin had been pulled back. And there were also some stab wounds onto, I believe it was her left breast. Aside from referencing the, quote, stump of her neck, the description the detective had provided vastly underplays the sheer horror of what he had witnessed that day. The victim was located just south of Cactus Road, right near Angela and Joe's apartment. The body was found completely nude, with only socks and white tennis shoes on her feet. It would later be revealed that the woman had suffered a single stab wound to the left side of her back, so deep that it punctured her aorta, lung, and had broken a rib. But there were several more wounds, almost too many to count according to the medical examiner. The frenzy had been so vicious that the victim's torso was nearly cut in two, and she had effectively been disemboweled. Many of the deeper punctures appeared to have been caused by some sort of large serrated blade, consistent with some type of hunting knife. However, something that intrigued investigators early on was the obvious precision of some of the other lacerations found on the body, suggesting that whoever did this was no novice. The killer had evidently taken his time during the attack. In addition to the meticulous incisions, countless stab wounds, and removal of the woman's head, there was also evidence of a sexual assault. Another piece of purple shirt in her bra is on the ground, uh, just a little ways away from her left shoulder. They had defects on them that looked they were they were cut with a knife, or it looks like the the panties had been cut. Investigators also found a white stain, which they believed to be semen, located on what remained of the victim's shirt, located not far from her body. This sample would be collected as evidence in addition to a vaginal swab that was taken for DNA testing. Investigators theorized that the killer had been lurking in the shadows like an animal hunting its prey, before inevitably lunging toward the victim from behind and stabbing her in the back. The medical examiner would later confirm this was the very first wound and the one that killed her. Knowing she more than likely died a quick death is the only solace considering the condition in which her remains were found. Authorities believe the woman had been thrown from her bike, but oddly enough, there was no bicycle recovered at the crime scene, and neither was the head. The homicide was unlike anything that Phoenix police had ever seen. One element of the crime that stood out in particular was the audaciousness of the killer. The fact that this person was willing to commit such vile acts right off of a heavily trafficked bike path, one that sat just a few hundred yards away from a busy freeway. Not long after the perimeter of the crime scene was roped off with caution tape, law enforcement would address the media later on that afternoon. Body uh, is, is decapitated. There are multiple injuries which our homicide detectives do not want to discuss at this point. 
Angela Brasso's boyfriend, Joe, feared for the worst as he watched the news from his and Angela's shared apartment. An aerial helicopter view of the crime scene showed the body from a distance overhead. While they were unable to at the time, authorities would confirm the victim's identity by the following day. The remains found, in fact, belonged to Angela Brasso, and she was murdered on the eve of her 22nd birthday of all days. Back at the Woodstone Apartments, hospital worker Marie Bergman couldn't help but think that whoever decapitated her neighbor Angela may still have been out hunting the morning she was followed into the parking lot. Tragically for Angela Brasso's family, her head was still missing, but several days later, a local man noticed something bobbing in the water down by the canal. Less than two weeks after Angela's murder, on Friday, November 20th, 1992, A local transient, known around town as the Fisher King, noticed an object floating in the canal across the street from the Metro Center Mall. He noticed it had gotten stuck on a drainage grate along with a dead fish and an old fast food cup. After fishing it out of the water himself, police were immediately notified. The man who made the discovery returned home shortly thereafter and told his mother he would never visit that side of the canal banks again. When she asked why, He said that he had found a human head, the one belonging to the 22-year-old woman who was found murdered 11 days before. This episode is proudly brought to you by Fabric by Gerber Life. I remember the day my dad died like it was just yesterday. It was a Friday morning in June, and the minute I walked into his hospital room, I knew he was going to die that day. It was that fast, and he was suddenly that sick. Looking back, if there's one thing I'm so thankful for, for all of the grief, the chaos, and the confusion after his death, it's that he had life insurance. And that's why I am proud to be sponsored by Fabric. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Believe me, I was like a lot of people leaning into that smaller life policy through my employer a little too much until I had my own kids. Then I started to look at the numbers and figure out what it would really take to provide for my family if I were suddenly gone. And that's when I took action and got my first term life insurance policy. With Fabric, you could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com invisible. That's meetfabric.com invisible. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash invisible. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Honey Love. All right, guys, the reviews are in. Honey Love came out on top for best wedding day shapewear. My wife has been raving about Honey Love for months, and I finally ordered her a crossover bra and superpower brief. For a family wedding, we have coming up in just a couple of weeks, and she absolutely loves the combination. In her words, for one reason and one reason only, the shapewear doesn't move, it stays put. She said where other shapewear she's tried over the years constantly rolls down throughout the night, Honey Love's flexible boning is hidden in the side seams and not in the front, which is an absolute game changer. Honey Love has revolutionized compression technology, so you no longer have to feel like you're suffocating while wearing effective shapewear. Well, what is it they say? Happy wife, happy life. Well, my wife absolutely loves how smooth and supportive the Honey Love Shapewear briefs are and how simple and easy they are to put on. 
In her words, she's finally found the right one. So whether you've finally found the right one and you're getting married or you're attending a wedding this season, Honey Love is the perfect plus one. And we have an exclusive offer for Invisible Choir listeners. Get 20% off your entire order with our exclusive link, honeylove.com slash choir. Support our show and check them out at honeylove.com forward slash choir. And guys, it doesn't stop there. Honey Love has more than just sculptware. They have incredibly comfortable bras, tanks, and leggings for everyday support. So treat yourself to the best shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash choir. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off at honeylove.com forward slash choir. Angela Brasso's head was found a mile and a half from her body, and unfortunately, several more months would pass without any viable leads. Because he was the last known person to see her, Angela Brasso's boyfriend, Joe, was initially one of the only suspects in the case. Eventually, though, he was eliminated from that list. After interviewing several witnesses, it appeared as though no one had seen or heard anything the night Angela disappeared. In the beginning, authorities thought the killer may have been a surgeon or even a former Special Forces operative, due to the precision of some of the cuts left on the body. But there was something else that made investigators question whether or not they were dealing with a professional of some kind. According to various reports, Angela Brasso's head was found with very little decomposition, which wouldn't make sense if her remains had been in the water for nearly two weeks. This revelation led investigators early on to believe that it hadn't, and that after removing Angela Brasso's head, the killer had taken it with him as a temporary keepsake. The lack of decay and effects from the elements suggested the head had been thrown in the water just recently. It was also possible that it may have been preserved in some way, likely frozen for several days. This would mean that after Angela was killed, the murderer would have had to return to a location just up the road from the original crime scene to discard of the head, after spending time with the so-called souvenir, for lack of a better term. This was just one more added layer of depravity to an already repulsive series of events. A few weeks later, reports in the local newspapers had already begun to run rampant with headlines using words such as skinning and Arizona's Buffalo Bill, referencing the popular horror film Silence of the Lambs. At the time, Angela Brasso's murder was the only thing people in Phoenix were talking about. Before long, it was labeled the most bizarre murder in the state's history. And while it certainly was reasonable to assume this would be the worst thing to ever happen in Arizona, unfortunately, the mayhem was far from over. More time would pass, and still there were no updates. The general public was as fearful as they were frustrated. However, no one was as distraught as Angela Brasso's family, her mother in particular. She wrote a powerful letter which was published in the local newspaper. The victim's mother was pleading for anyone with information to come forward, while also calling out her daughter's killer directly. The person or persons who know who killed Angie are allowing this to happen allowing this criminal to have a life, to breathe air. I wish this criminal had the courage to stand face to face with me and tell me why he did this terrible thing to my precious daughter, but I'm sure he is too much of a coward. The Phoenix police also asked for the public's help, 
which unfortunately turned out to be a fruitless endeavor. The case was getting colder by the day, and as the months passed, people slowly began to forget. Headlines about Buffalo Bill and the killer on the loose gradually became less and less frequent. The residents of Phoenix were left with no other choice but to carry on with their lives. Things were just starting to get back to normal, until less than one year later. Ten months after Angela Brasso was killed, history would repeat itself in the most repulsive way possible, and the city of Phoenix was forced to reckon with the fact that a killer was still very much in their backyard and on the loose. On Tuesday, September 21st, 1993, 17-year-old Melanie Burness had stayed home from school. She told her mother she wasn't feeling well, so she took the day to rest. Later on that day, when her mother returned home from work, she greeted her daughter Melanie, who had been relaxing on the couch. Her mother had dinner plans that night, but before she'd left the house again around 7 p.m., she made sure to kiss her daughter goodbye. When I said goodbye to her, I kissed her, said, I love you, and she was sitting on the sofa, and I said, I'll see you in a little while. Perhaps playing hooky that day, by the time her mother left, Melanie seemed to be feeling better. So she'd made plans to ride bikes that evening with her friend Jessica when she finished her shift at the Metro Center Mall. Um, and I said, I'll see you when I get off work. I got off work late that night, and I went to her house. Um, she wasn't there. Melanie was on her way to meet Jessica at the mall, but she never showed up. When Jessica arrived at Melanie's house sometime later, she was confused as to why she wasn't home, thinking where else could she be. A few hours later, when Melanie's mom returned to the house, she called out to Melanie, but Melanie still hadn't made it back yet. Her mother, thinking her daughter was still sick, thought Melanie was staying in for the night, and after looking in her bedroom and then outside, Melanie's mother realized her bicycle was missing. And Melanie's bike was missing, and then I I was very, very concerned at that point. Before long, 9 p.m. rolled around, which was Melanie's curfew. She almost never stayed out past 9, especially on a school night. At 11 p.m., Melanie's mother decided to phone police. Authorities arrived at the home soon after, but informed her that an official missing persons report could not be filed until 24 hours had passed. Melanie's mother began calling friends in local hospitals, desperate to locate her 17-year-old daughter. I called the emergency rooms to see if they had had a patient there who perhaps was in an accident with a bicycle. Despite her best efforts, none of the hospitals had. No one with the name Melanie Burness had been admitted to any local hospitals, and her mother Marlene was forced to go to sleep that night without any answers or trace of where her daughter might be. The following morning on September 22, 1993, a jogger was running on the bike path just above the Arizona Canal, alongside Interstate 17. He slowed his pace after noticing a pool of dark liquid collected there on the concrete. Not long after, a cyclist did as well, but only after she rode directly through it. I often would stand up and pedal just because to get more momentum and uh, and then ended up riding through a puddle of blood, but I wasn't sure what it was at that time. And I said, I hope it wasn't because it splattered all over me.
After both individuals notified the police, they arrived on scene shortly after, but only to be met with a horribly familiar scene. From the pool of blood, there led a trail, from the bike path above, past a fence, and down the slanted concrete wall, where the ravine met the canal. Detectives on scene followed that blood trail down to the water's edge. The drag marks and blood went together, and the drag marks appeared to be from something heavy like a human. And he was right. It was another female body found floating in the Arizona Canal. After recovering the deceased from the water, the victim was quickly identified as Arcadia High School Jr., 17-year-old Melanie Burness. While all of Melanie's limbs and extremities were intact, she too had been stabbed to death. One injury that was almost identical to Angela Brasso's the year before was the single yet extremely deep stab wound to her back. This particular wound punctured the aorta and lung in the very same way as well. Another grim detail these two homicides shared was that the victims had both been raped, and just like in Angela's murder, semen was discovered on Melanie's clothing nearby. The vaginal swab for the purpose of hopeful DNA evidence was subsequently taken at the scene as well. Melanie Burness's body was located in the water across the street from the Metro Center Mall, which is almost exactly where Angela Brasso's head had been found floating the year before. In addition, Melanie's bike was missing. It was a green, specialized hard rock sport mountain bike. The similarities between these two murders was simply too profound to ignore. There were some notable differences, including the following. Melanie had what appeared to resemble a large crucifix carved into her stomach. There were also the letters WSC knifed into her upper chest. Investigators were left scratching their heads in regards to what these initials could possibly mean. Whatever it meant, it was clear the killer took valuable time yet again, risking being caught to inflict these unusual markings. Ten months prior, Angela Brasso's decapitated body was found almost completely nude. Melanie Burness, on the other hand, was found wearing a turquoise zip-up bodysuit at the time she was pulled from the water. At first glance, this detail may not seem to be of great importance. However, when investigators located more of Melanie's clothing discarded in a bush nearby, they were curious. More of Melanie's clothes were also found in a trash bin up above, near the roadway. Her bra was also discovered several feet away in the same vicinity near the bike path. While her headphones were also found, Melanie's Walkman CD player appeared to have been stolen. The victim's clothing almost immediately became the focal point of the investigation. The reason being was that Melanie Burness didn't own a turquoise bodysuit, meaning the one piece of clothing she was wearing had been provided by someone else. Melanie's mother had never seen the bodysuit before, and she was certain it didn't belong to Melanie as she never wore anything of the sort. The fact that her actual clothes were found ripped up and scattered throughout the crime scene indicated to investigators that the killer had dressed the victim in the outfit of his liking after she was killed. Melanie Burness was redressed in the bodysuit that wasn't hers before she was crudely dumped in the canal. Again, just like Angela Brasso, 
The killer was brazen enough to take additional time in these bizarre extracurricular activities after the murder had already been committed. When the news broke of another canal murder almost identical to the other, terror had officially been reinstated throughout all of Phoenix. I don't know what the motive is. I'm so confused. I, I really want to know, like, why, you know? There's some guy out there, and you don't know where he is. He might be one of your mom's best friends or whatever. I don't come out here anymore unless I'm with somebody. Residents were afraid to leave their houses once again. And the 12-mile bike path that ran through the city wasn't seeing as much use in 1993 for obvious reasons. The canal killer had seemingly re-emerged and was once again on everyone's radar. Except now, police had a likely serial killer on their hands. Both victims were young females. Both were stabbed in the upper torso. They were killed while on evening bike rides. The bicycles of both victims were taken. Neither bike has been recovered. Authorities wouldn't officially confirm whether or not the two murders were connected for some time. Roughly one year after Melanie Burness was killed, law enforcement finally released information regarding the clothing she was found in. In 1994, members of the Phoenix Police appeared on local television to release photographs of the unique turquoise bodysuit, hoping that someone may have seen it before or possibly even know where it came from. Someone could be able to identify this particular item of clothing as something that had been taken from them in the past in a burglary or a theft. Or maybe someone was in the area of the Burnus homicide when it occurred and saw someone that had this particular article of clothing in their possession. Law enforcement received hundreds of tips, but as far as anyone knew, there were no substantial developments in either homicide investigation. The only real hope in regards to evidence was the DNA that had been taken from both crime scenes samples, both of which were still awaiting eventual testing. Unfortunately, a significant amount of time would pass before that would ever happen. Five long years, in fact. In 1999, Phoenix police would resurface and return to the airwaves with a public update. They confirmed that whoever killed these two women was, without a doubt, present at both crime scenes when both murders occurred. What that tells us is that there is an individual who is at both homicide scenes. And that's really all it tells us. It doesn't say that that individual even is the killer. What it tells us is, is that a, a same person was at both homicide scenes and had contact with both victims. After comparing the semen found at Angela Brasso's crime scene with the DNA found at Melanie Burnus's, it was official. Both male profiles were that of the same individual. The only problem was authorities didn't know who that person was. You've got to remember this was back in the 1990s. Forensic science simply wasn't what it is today. Law enforcement had limited resources back then, and this case was no different. Law enforcement was relying upon the Combined DNA Index System, otherwise known as CODIS. It's a software which serves as a national criminal database of convicted felons, unsolved cold cases, and missing persons cases. When they ran the profile through the system, no results came back. And while the crime lab was able to confirm that the DNA was linked to both murders, investigators were still without a name or face of their suspect. This was more than likely due to the fact that the killer had a clean criminal record and had never been convicted of a serious or violent felony offense. Therefore, they weren't in the system at all. Naturally, this was a major disappointment to everyone involved in investigating both homicides. 
was starting to look like the families of both Angela Brasso and Melanie Burnus may never receive the justice they so deserved. Subsequent weeks would eventually turn to months, and months into long years once again, resulting in what would eventually become two of Arizona's longest-running cold cases. It's hard to believe, but more than 20 years would go by. And over the span of two decades, authorities received hundreds if not thousands of tips regarding the infamous Canal Killer, but none that would lead to an arrest. Whoever this man was, he was still out there somewhere, and according to professionals, he more than likely hadn't gone very far. The VDOC Society, a group of forensic experts out of Philadelphia committed to solving cold cases, was eventually enlisted by the Phoenix Police Department. They determined that the individual who killed Angela and Melanie was more than likely still living in the Phoenix area. They also predicted that based on the disturbing nature of both homicides, the culprit was more than likely someone who engaged in fantasy, fetish, and may or may not be partial to setting fires. In addition, the VDOC Society ascertained that the killer more than likely had committed similar acts in the past, perhaps not nearly as extreme, but cutting, knife play, BDSM were all things this individual may be into. It was also suggested that he'd probably crossed paths with law enforcement at one point or another, before or even after the murders had taken place. While all of these scenarios were certainly possibilities, whatever crimes this person may or may not have committed in the past weren't enough to land him a spot in the National Criminal Database. Not to mention, this person was living a life amongst the public somewhere, still entirely without consequence after all these years. But as they say, everything has to come to an end at one point or another, and that includes the freedom of a double murderer. In October of 2014, a forensic genetic genealogist by the name of Colleen Fitzpatrick attended the International Symposium on Human Identification. The annual conference was held in Phoenix that year where scientists, members of law enforcement, and professionals alike came together to discuss and celebrate all things forensic DNA, particularly recent advancements that had been made in the field. Fitzpatrick is somewhat of a pioneer in the field herself and is highly revered. In 2007, she helped identify a two-year-old child who died on the Titanic back in 1912, along with several other John and Jane Doe cases throughout her impressive career. At the 2014 conference, Colleen Fitzpatrick became acquainted with members of the Phoenix Police Department, specifically the cold case homicide unit tasked with investigating the canal murders. I had the opportunity to speak to the cold case unit there and telling them about forensic genealogy, what I did, um, how they could apply genealogical tools to solve their, you know, many of their cases in general. And as I was leaving, they said, well, you know, we do have this one case we might send you. So I said, fine. You know, I didn't think much about it. By the end of that meeting, Fitzpatrick had been recruited. She agreed to aid in the investigation using her expertise to help solve the notorious cold case that was now approaching 25 years. In the weeks that followed, the forensics team in Phoenix would send the Y-DNA profile over to Colleen Fitzpatrick's lab in California. I ran it against the genetic genealogy databases out there, and I was able to come up with a name that, was, that matched their profile. Utilizing original software that she and her team had created, along with consumer genealogy websites such as Ancestry.com 
and FamilyTreeDNA.com. Colleen had single-handedly narrowed it down to only a few possible suspects. Five, in fact. But most notably, three of them all came back with the same last name, Miller. And from that five, there was only one that floated to the top because his profile was pretty much what the VDOC Society and the FBI had said to look for. By December of 2014, in a matter of roughly three months, Colleen Fitzpatrick had made more progress in the case independently than the Phoenix Police and the FBI had in over 20 years. The authorities finally had a name and a face for what was previously nothing more than an unknown Y chromosome for nearly two decades. But when that official result came in, they almost couldn't believe it. The detective told me that the group was in um, like a boring staff meeting at 4.30 on a Friday night, something like that. And everybody, you know, wanted to go home. And then they got a call from the DNA lab saying, hey, can we come over and uh, talk to you? And they said, okay, sure. You know, everybody is just real tired and hung up. And everybody was laughing and saying, hey, I bet you they're going to come and tell us they solved the canal murders, right? You know, and everybody was laughing and said, nah, they probably won overtime, you know. And then they walked in. The DNA people said, that was him. You got him. And the whole room just exploded. The same Miller had, in fact, been at the top of what they called their, quote, extensive list of candidates for years. And that individual would ultimately turn out to be a man in his early 40s a Phoenix, Arizona resident named Brian Patrick Miller. The male DNA profile found in and on both Angela Brasso and Melanie Burness's bodies was not an exact match to Brian Patrick Miller exclusively, but it was tied to his family lineage, meaning he's got a relative out there somewhere to blame for submitting their sample to one of these genealogy websites. Brian Patrick Miller didn't have a prior criminal record as suspected, but that's only because he was a minor when he committed his first documentable offense. Brian Patrick Miller was in and out of the Arizona juvenile justice system as early as age 15. In 1988, he was sent to the Department of Corrections after admitting to criminal damage. While he was there, he was put on a treatment plan. He was described as emotionally immature, angry, impulsive, and depressed. And according to his records, Miller also exhibited inappropriate sexual and violent tendencies. His counselors noted that he needed to work through these major issues in dealing with his sexuality at the time. A juvenile court judge would also recommend that Miller be considered for the juvenile sex offenders program. As far as we know, he never entered into that program and was released from juvenile detention in March of 1989. A month later, in May of 1989, 16-year-old Brian Patrick Miller boarded a city bus in Phoenix. Also on that bus was an 18-year-old woman named Celeste Bentley, who was heading to her job at the Paradise Mall. When Celeste got off the bus, so did Brian Patrick Miller. He then continued following her for a short time through the mall parking lot. I was walking alone, and then I um, noticed, I turned and noticed there was someone walking behind me. Miller then pulled out a knife and began stabbing her. All of a sudden, someone hit me in the back. When I reached back, I, I just I grabbed my back and then I pulled my hand close in front of me because it was wet. And I looked and I saw the blood and I had known that I, he had stabbed me. I just started screaming and running towards my work. Celeste would unknowingly become Miller's very first victim. 
and only one of the few who would ultimately survive. Brian Patrick Miller was caught following the incident. He was arrested not far from the scene. He would ultimately plead guilty to second-degree attempted murder. However, due to his young age, he was never formally charged. Instead, he would spend just over a year in juvenile detention until his 18th birthday, at which point he was released. No fingerprints, no DNA, and no entry into any criminal database. When he was released in 1990, Miller's name would ring bells once more when his mother contacted Phoenix police. She found handwritten journal entries believed to have been written by her son while he was locked up in juvenile detention. In those letters, Miller reflected on stabbing 18-year-old Celeste Bentley in the mall parking lot and reflected on how much he enjoyed it. He wrote that it, quote, sent chills up my spine in excitement. In another document entitled The Plan, Miller penned a detailed list of materials, things he was going to need for his next victim. Carving knife, garbage bag for body part disposal, container for blood, gloves, black hood. In Miller's own words, he went on to express his desire to kidnap a woman. He said that he wanted to cut off her clothes, to sexually assault her, and slice her skin to, quote, scare her. He continued by stating that he wanted to cut his victim's stomach open before, quote, reserving the head so I can look at it in the future. In terms of how he intended to, quote, reserve the head, we can't be sure. But considering what would happen to Angela Brasso just two years after he wrote this letter, it's hard not to wonder what he may have been doing with her head in the days before it was found floating in the canal. While these writings were provided to the police, nothing was ever done about it, and Brian Patrick Miller was essentially left to stew quietly in his sick fantasies until one day he decided to act on them. For over two decades, Brian Patrick Miller was able to evade law enforcement. And despite what occurred when he was just a juvenile, he never truly became a suspect until after Melanie Burness's bodysuit photos were released to the public. Once they were, back in 1994, a tip came in, arguably the first of any real value. The person who submitted the tip, who chose to remain anonymous, told authorities that they had seen the bodysuit in a man's possession and that man was Brian Patrick Miller. The tipster claimed they knew Miller personally, and that they were certain it was the same bodysuit shown on the news, and that Miller had been seen with it months before Melanie Burness was killed. At the time, there were upwards of 2,000 suspects, and Brian Patrick Miller just became another name on the list. That is, until the 2014 DNA breakthrough, thanks to genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick. Fast forward one year later, Investigators were certain they had their guy, but they still needed to obtain a sample of Miller's DNA from him directly. Without that sample, from a legal perspective, they had nothing. The authorities knew they needed to match a current sample to the 1992 and 1993 DNA profiles to effectively charge Brian Patrick Miller with murder. Unwilling to blow a 20-plus year investigation by making a premature arrest, they came up with a plan. By now, authorities had learned a bit more of who Brian Patrick Miller was, and among that information is that he had previously worked as a security guard from 2009 to 2012, but that he was now working at an Amazon fulfillment center in Phoenix. In the winter of 2015, undercover officers showed up at that Amazon warehouse, 
posing as employees of a local security company. Knowing that Miller possessed experience in the field, they asked him if he would assist in surveilling a property they needed help with. I came up with an idea that I would recruit Mr. Miller as a security person. I told him that we were out there doing security on that particular office complex, warehouse, and that there had been some thefts from it. And I asked him if he'd ever seen anybody back there, and he'd said, yeah, there's been some bands in and out of that place. So I told him, I said, we were, we're, we were trying to do it, but trying to do the surveillance, but frankly, we didn't want to do it anymore. And, and if he'd be interested in working for us as a security guard, watching that particular warehouse from the back. The attempt at stroking Miller's ego and using his past job experience worked. He agreed to meet with members of law enforcement, who he believed were security guards at a nearby Chili's. Over a basket of chips, salsa, and one could only hope fajitas, the group discussed what Miller believed to be a promising job opportunity. After finishing their meal and exiting the restaurant, law enforcement returned to the dining room to confiscate dishes, utensils, and the cup Brian Patrick Miller had been drinking from. These items were then brought to the crime lab, tested and cross-analyzed with the DNA found at both 1990s crime scenes. And wouldn't you know it, just like that, they got him. Tonight, after more than 20 years, a Phoenix man is behind bars accused of both murders. This is 42-year-old Brian Patrick Miller. On January 13, 2015, 42-year-old Brian Patrick Miller was taken into custody at his home at 844 East Mountain View Road in Phoenix. He was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of kidnapping, one count of sexual assault, and one count of attempted sexual assault. Miller's own teenage daughter, who had been living with him at the time, was present while her father was being taken away. Undercover Phoenix police detectives were able to obtain a DNA sample from the suspect just last week. Phoenix police addressed the media that same evening. It was a long-awaited announcement some 23 years in the making. Immediately following his arrest, a slightly overweight Brian Patrick Miller sat slouched across from a detective in an interrogation room. He sat quietly, averting eye contact, wearing a black t-shirt and prescription eyeglasses. By appearance alone, Miller didn't look like someone you would assume would rape and dismember women. He came across more as an unambitious middle-aged man who may or may not work at your local comic book store. Once he got to talking, however, and after police revealed what information they already had on him, any harmless first impressions went straight out the window. The detective slid a copy of the 1990 letter across the table, the one Miller wrote 25 years before on how he wanted to torture, rape, and kill women. The one he so aptly named, The Plan. When confronted with his own writings, Miller couldn't seem to remember. Granted, he had written the letter over two decades before, even so, he'd begin to show a pattern of memory loss regarding more than just old sheets of loose-leaf paper. More specifically, the incontrovertible DNA evidence he was now being confronted with. How can you explain to me that your DNA is there? I can't. I can't remember Places you with these women, and you can't explain that. I don't even 
The detective goes on to ask Miller if he understands the various kinds of DNA evidence used in forensic investigations. Perhaps this is an attempt to gauge his level of competence, or maybe it's just a softball question the detective lobs to see if Miller will swing and miss. Throughout the two-hour interrogation, Miller repeats the phrase, quote, I don't remember, or I don't know, over and over again. Of course, that's what they all say, but it's an important detail worth noting, especially when it comes to the defense his team will inevitably present in court later on. At one point during the interview, Brian Patrick Miller himself mentions that he stabbed an 18-year-old girl at the Paradise Mall, Celeste Bentley, back in 1989. Police already knew this, of course, but Miller decided to offer it up willingly. I've never killed anyone. When I was a teenager, I stabbed that woman. Right. You know, that haunted me for years. He says he blacked out during the attack when he was just 17. The detective then asks if the same thing happened when he killed Angela Brasso or Melanie Burnus. Possible that you could have blacked out and done something like that to somebody and not recall? At the very same time, Brian Patrick Miller is struggling to recall his victim's name. A search warrant was being executed over at his one-story dwelling. Apparently, he was quite the hoarder, so much so that investigators couldn't even enter through the front door. Hazmat suits were a must. Among the items seized were cell phones, computers, hard drives, flash drives, women's hair clips, and even jewelry. There was also a VHS cassette tape of an exploitative documentary called Shocking Asia. The film, which has been banned in certain countries, consists of vile footage pertaining to animal cruelty, sex change operations, and physical deformities, all for the sake of shock value entertainment. In addition, there were stacks of missing persons flyers discovered, all bearing the $1,000 reward offer in bold text, just above the black and white photographs of both Angela Brasso and Melanie Burnus. Also amidst the clutter, authorities managed to find dozens of knives, hunting and steak knives specifically, located in the laundry room, kitchen, and bedroom. Investigators were also seen removing at least one bicycle from an aluminum shed in the backyard. It was a green, specialized mountain bike. It would take several days and two more storage container pods to complete the search. By the end of it, law enforcement had collected over 400 items from Miller's residence. Among them, his Amazon work locker and his vehicle. An old Crown Vic police car with the words, The Zombie Hunter, written on the trunk. The car which also represents an important part of this story, but we'll get to that. As it relates to the search, two storage containers chock full of evidence would eventually be hauled to the CSI lab for processing. Before that could even be arranged, Miller still had to complete his interview down at the police station. During his initial questioning, the detectives eventually begin coming down harder on him regarding his involvement in the murders of Angela Brasso and Melanie Burnus. I don't know what happened. You have to know what happened. No, your semen is there. That's the only... The only person that does know is you. 
Ultimately, it didn't matter what Miller could or could not remember. His semen was found with both victims' bodies, a disturbing truth that could not be simply explained away. Miller was then placed in handcuffs and escorted to a holding cell. Hours later, he was seen again, this time in black and white horizontal stripes at his bond hearing. All right, I need your full name and date of birth, please. Brian Patrick Miller, October 24, 1972. A meek Brian Patrick Miller stood before the judge with his glasses and receding hairline before he was inevitably held without bond. Phoenix homicide detectives thought this was the end. Some had even come to tears at the perceived finality of the case. Little did they know it wasn't over, not even close. As immediately following Brian Patrick Miller's arrest, his wife Amy went to the police. She told them that Celeste Bentley, Angela Brasso, and Melanie Burness weren't her husband's only victims, explaining that there were likely several more, some who had survived, and others who had potentially not. More on that next time on Invisible Choir. He came up behind me and put his arm around my both of my shoulders and got me in the neck. He stabbed me twice in the back and then he strangled me until I passed out. Back on May 26, 1992, 13-year-old Brandy Lynn Myers went missing going door-to-door -door raising money for school book drive. And it reads, I told you I enjoyed it when I cut you and sucked on the wound. This is true. That was something extremely intimate. I want us to start to bring it to the edge of danger. Bring it close to being the most intimate it could be. 